Chapter 18 Charades Ty wasn't going to attend most of the trial. She had to work, and in any case, since she was likely to be a witness, British court rules prohibited her from showing up until after she had testified. But Sandy, back on speaking terms with her son, expected to be there every day. Footnote Hayes's father didn't plan to attend. Nick's presence there risked enraging Sandy, and in turn adding to his son's stress. End footnote. She recently had purchased an apartment in London's Maida Vale neighborhood, and Hayes decided to set up shop there for the duration of the trial. That way, he only had to hop on the tube for a short train ride. He would return to Fleet on the weekends. To get a feel for things, Sandy showed up at the Suffolk courthouse the week before the trial was set to begin and sat in on an accused Albanian drug peddler's case. She was the only spectator. Jurors stared at her, seeming to wonder what she was doing there. Hayes and Ty decided that she would escort him into court the first day. Her presence would be soothing and would give the photographers outside the courthouse an alternative to the usual fare of Hayes, alone and scowling, as he entered and left pretrial hearings. Hayes planned their itinerary in obsessive detail allowing nearly two hours of extra time to absorb any unforeseen delays. Things went smoothly until they got in a taxicab outside Waterloo Station. They told the driver where they were going, but he misunderstood and took them to the wrong courthouse. It was only a mile or so away from Suffolk, and they were running ridiculously early, but the detour threw Hayes for a loop. His pulse started racing. He broke into a sweat. He clutched a handle inside the cab so hard that his knuckles turned white. We're not going to make it, he whispered to Ty over and over. As the taxi approached the correct courthouse, it missed the turnoff. On a narrow road clogged with rush hour traffic, the driver pulled a risky U turn. A couple hundred yards away from the court, Hayes and Ty clambered out, relieved that their journey was over. Holding hands in the late spring sun, they walked the rest of the way. As a crowd of photographers and cameramen trained their lenses on them, a gust of wind lifted Ty's knee length turquoise dress. It was more than Hayes could bear. By the time they had made their way inside the courthouse, he was in a full on panic. He sat in a waiting room, Pulling out his hair. Glittering glass and steel offices, hotels, and apartment buildings had fast been replacing Suffolk's beaten down buildings. Among these modern arrivals, the Suffolk Crown Court stood out as a particular eyesore. The dreary, brown brick structure seemed to have been designed by someone biased against natural illumination. Windows were few and far between. Odd architecture for a riverside building overlooking a retired British warship, the city's landmark skyscrapers, and a nearly thousand year old fortress, the Tower of London. Upon entering the courthouse, everyone, judges, jurors, lawyers, and certainly defendants, had to pass through a pair of hypersensitive metal detectors. 
To get to the courtrooms, people had to either navigate two sets of staircases, one of them a fire exit, or rely on small, rickety elevators whose doors had a tendency to crash shut on people's limbs. The occasional mouse scampered along the cafeteria's linoleum floors. Inside the courtrooms, though, pomp and decorum prevailed. Lawyers authorized to speak in court, barristers, had to wear black cloaks with white neck scarves. On their heads sat light colored horsehair wigs, honeycombed on top, tight curls tumbling down the sides, and two tails dangling in the back, cinched off with string. The traditional 18th century attire was even more elaborate for judges, decked out in outfits that resembled Santa costumes red cloaks with white lining and thick, furry cuffs. Red sashes across the chests, and flowing white wigs to top off the ensembles. Not only did everyone stand when the judge entered or exited the courtroom, but anyone who came or went while court was in session was supposed to bow. Courtroom two was a cramped, windowless room with blonde wooden benches and harsh fluorescent bulbs embedded in the ceiling. A large metal seal on the wall at the front of the room, behind the judge's raised platform, displayed a lion, a unicorn, a crown, and the monarchy's motto, Dieu est mon droit, God and my right. The prior week, the court clerk had dispensed tickets to the press and public, trying to stave off a mad rush for limited seats. But before the doors opened that morning, a line of spectators snaked into an adjoining hallway. Spin doctors from Citigroup and UBS were there, as were lawyers for UBS, for Hayes' former brokers, and for numerous other parties with interests in the case. Hayes sat in a middle row, biting his fingernails and sipping water from a white plastic cup. In a rare victory, Hayes' lawyers had argued that their client shouldn't be penned up in the dock. They needed access to him during the proceedings. Cook assented. The dock, with its two rows of bolted down purple chairs, was henceforth occupied by journalists. Sandy, her wispy white hair swept up in a loose bun and a thin, patterned scarf tossed over her left shoulder, sat in the front row of the spectator's box, accompanied by her husband, Tim. The jury filed in for the first time seven men and five women. It was a young, ragtag bunch. Several wore jeans and t shirts, another a hooded sweatshirt. They carted backpacks, coffees, water bottles, and containers of fruit into the jury box, two elevated rows of chairs and desks perpendicular to the judge and lawyers. Suffolk juries, drawn from the area surrounding the courthouse, were notorious among London's bar for being tough for prosecutors. Jurors often harbored a distrust of law enforcement authorities. But this would be a fair fight. Perhaps the only professionals less favored than such authority figures were bankers like Hayes. Cook opened the proceedings by informing the jurors that the defendant had been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and, as a result, would have a court appointed aide, called an intermediary, seated next to him. The aide's role, the judge explained, was to provide Hayes with emotional assistance. 
The jurors gawked at him like an animal in a zoo. Mukul Chawla was born in Nairobi, Kenya in 1961, but his parents immigrated with him and his sister to England when they were young in search of a better education for the children. A lifelong Bruce Springsteen fan, Chawla flirted with a career as a record producer, but it turned out that loving music wasn't a sufficient qualification. He had stints at a tobacco shop and a clothing store before deciding to follow in the footsteps of his father, a lawyer. The elder Chawla, who specialized in property law, was mostly desk-bound, and his son was determined to avoid that fate. He wanted to be in a courtroom, not an office. Criminal law beckoned, and a decade into his career as a trial lawyer, Chawla, with an ample belly, bushy black eyebrows, and a lilting baritone voice, was taking on increasingly prominent cases. In the British legal system, barristers operate out of their own small private practices and take both defense and prosecution work on a contract basis. Chawla made his name defending a police sergeant accused of unlawfully killing a black paratrooper and by representing one of six men charged with fraud and corruption in connection with a public transportation project. He also prosecuted complex commercial and drug cases for the government. Known for relentless preparation and a knack for winning the confidence of juries with his friendly, low-key demeanor, his peers regarded him as one of London's finest trial lawyers. In July 2012, within a couple of weeks of the SFO deciding to open a criminal investigation into LIBOR manipulation, the agency came to Chawla with perhaps his highest-profile assignment, helping run the case. For the next three years, he had been deeply involved in every aspect of the investigation. His salt-and-pepper hair peeking out from beneath a blonde wig, Chawla stood up in court on the first morning of the trial and began his opening statement. He had written the speech in advance, and now he read it, frequently looking up at the jury in a soft voice. He introduced himself and his fellow prosecution lawyers, and then, to demonstrate that he was a man of fairness, he introduced the defense lawyers too. This was a simple case, Chawla said, and it was all about greed. Hayes had been motivated by money, pure and simple, and he hadn't let anyone or anything, certainly not the law, stand in his way. At times, Hayes had resorted to threats and bribes, paying out tens of thousands of pounds in corrupt fees to brokers who did his dirty work. The case would drag on for weeks, Chawla warned, and it would involve some pretty complicated financial arcana. But at its heart, it was a fundamental matter of right and wrong. Luckily, the defendant had made things easier. He had confessed to everything, on tape. To demonstrate, Chawla played a snippet of Hayes telling the SFO that he probably deserved to be sitting there. And if that wasn't enough, there were reams of evidence in which Hayes wrote out his instructions to colleagues and brokers. Hayes, Chawla said, had even admitted that his LIBOR-moving efforts likely netted his employers several million dollars a year of profits. Not a lot compared to the star trader's overall haul, but more than enough for him to be guilty of fraud.
Don't be fooled, the prosecutor added. The defense will argue that Hayes wasn't alone in his efforts. That was true and irrelevant. Because lots of people are doing it, doesn't mean it's not fundamentally dishonest, does it? he asked. And any argument that the British Bankers Association's broken processes somehow justified Hayes' behavior would be akin to claiming that burglary was acceptable because someone left a window ajar, he said. Hayes struggled to contain his emotions. He shook his head. He leaned back in his chair and stared at the ceiling, fists clenched. He scribbled notes. He urgently whispered to his intermediary. He angrily jabbed a finger in Chow La's direction. Calm down, his aide mouthed. Over the next few weeks, the trial and Hayes settled into a rhythm. Court ran from 10 a.m. until an hour-long lunch break began around 1 p.m., then resumed until shortly after 4 p.m. Hayes woke up at 7.30 a.m. and skipped breakfast. On important days, he donned a pair of lucky QPR socks. On the tube ride to court, he played Street Fighter on his iPhone. At the courthouse, he bought a cup of tea from the small coffee shop in the lobby. Then he waited for the day to start, playing Sudoku games that he tore out of a newspaper. During breaks, Hayes and his lawyers huddled in a tiny meeting room across the hall from courtroom two. There was barely space for a couple of chairs, a coat rack, and a small table. Neil Hawes and his colleagues would try to soothe their anxious, angry client. In the hallway outside, Chow La, who had quit smoking the year before, could be seen puffing on an electronic cigarette, vapor curling out of his mouth and nostrils. After court most evenings, Hayes and Sandy walked around a small, hedge-lined park near the Maida Vale flat. She mostly listened as he ranted. She cooked him a healthy dinner with lots of vegetables. He took a shower or bath, then climbed into bed to read or to watch a TV game show called Love Island. Then he popped a sleeping pill. Most nights, he tossed and turned. In early June, Hayes' lawyers finally were informed that the FCA Appeals Committee had invalidated the regulator's punishment against Pete the Greek, concluding that his actions weren't dishonest. At first, the defense team was ecstatic. This was a potentially game-changing piece of evidence. But then Cook ruled that it wasn't relevant to Hayes' trial because the appeals committee wasn't evaluating Pete the Greek's actions from a criminal law standpoint. The defense wouldn't be permitted to tell the jury about it. The lawyers were crestfallen. Hayes was just furious. There was a consistent pattern when it came to testimony by prosecution witnesses. A remarkable lack of memory when it came to anything that might help Hayes. As Chow La questioned him, Former BBA employee John Ewan claimed he had been completely oblivious to the warning signs that banks were manipulating LIBOR to benefit their trading positions. He said the first he learned of this despicable practice was when he read the CFTC settlement documents with Barclays in June 2012. Did you have any suspicion that this type of activity was taking place? 
Chala asked. No, Ewan said. Could you conceive of this kind of activity taking place? The prosecutor asked. It's not impossible as a thought experiment, Ewan allowed, in a great understatement. During cross-examination, Hawes went through the BBA's notes from the visits Ewan paid to LIBOR submitting banks in 2005 and 2006, showing clearly that one bank after another had voiced concerns about the practices of lowballing and of skewing LIBOR to benefit trading portfolios. Ewan insisted he hadn't recognized the red flags. When banks raised these concerns, Hawes asked quietly, Did Ewan ask for more information? I can't recall, Ewan said. It's ten years ago. What did the BBA's LIBOR Oversight Committee do when it heard concerns like this? I don't remember, Ewan said. The real answer, of course, was nothing. Hawes asked Ewan about a letter the Chicago Mercantile Exchange had written in 2008, noting that a LIBOR submitter who inputs data from within a range of feasible numbers commits no falsehood if she bases her response to the daily LIBOR survey upon the lowest of those, or the highest, or any other arbitrary selection from among them. So, Hawes asked, adjusting his thick, black-rimmed spectacles, Does that mean it's acceptable for banks to set LIBOR anywhere within a plausible range of numbers? Ewan considered that for a few moments, shifting in his chair. The courtroom was silent. That is perfectly consistent with the definition, he finally answered, although he added that it would be unusual for there to be a notable dispersion between the highest and lowest rates at which a bank could borrow money. Sitting in the back of the courtroom, Hayes pumped his head up and down in a vigorous, victorious motion. It was the most animated he'd been since the trial began. On July 6th, the Crown wrapped up its case, a 27-day onslaught that with breaks had extended over a month and a half. After the jury had been dismissed for the day, Hawes's deputy, Christopher Conway, prepared Cook for what to expect when the defense opened its case the following morning. Hayes, Conway warned, would be fragile, and if, as expected, he would be testifying for the better part of two weeks, that would put an extraordinary strain on him. The discussions over Hayes' mental state lasted nearly 30 minutes. Hayes sat in the back of the courtroom, listening. I'm sorry that we're talking about you as if you're not here. Cook said at one point. Hayes smiled awkwardly. In the morning, Ty took a seat in the courtroom next to Sandy and Tim. Hayes's team had decided not to have her testify after all, so she was free to attend, and she had taken the week off work. For the first time since the trial began, the courtroom was full. London's legal and financial communities were dying to hear what Hayes had up his sleeve, He must have something, given his seemingly crazy decision to fight the charges. Kweku Aduboli, who had just been released early from prison, was among those following the proceedings via Twitter and the media. I wish him luck, he texted an acquaintance in the courtroom. Hayes, clean-shaven, wore a blue button-down shirt under a thin navy blue sweater. And, of course, his lucky QPR socks. 
Before the judge entered, Hawes crouched in front of his client. Are you okay? The lawyer whispered. Hayes nodded. Are you ready? He nodded again. Cook read a message to the jurors about Hayes' Asperger's diagnosis. Quoting loosely from Allison Beck's report, he explained that people with Asperger's often don't see shades of gray, but often tend to see things in terms of black and white. Hayes has a pattern of prioritizing patterns and numbers over people and doesn't perceive the world as people without Asperger's syndrome do. The judge concluded with a crucial caveat. You're hearing about Asperger's because it relates to Hayes' presentation as a witness. It's not directly relevant to the case. In other words, the jurors could take his condition into account as it related to any quirks in his testimony, but it shouldn't influence their judgment about his guilt or innocence. As Cook spoke, Hayes sat in the back of the courtroom, chewing on the sleeve of his sweater. Then he marched to the witness stand, walking past Ty. They shared a smile, her cheeks flushed. Hayes swore to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In his pocket, he carried a folded-up photo of a grinning Joshua lying on a furry white blanket. He planned to pull it out any time his stress levels spiked. Hawes started the interrogation with a simple question. Do you accept that you have acted dishonestly? No, I do not accept that, Hayes answered. Things soon got more complicated. His nervousness was obvious. Each time Hawes started to ask a question, Hayes cocked his head slightly to the right and pursed his lips. Sometimes he swiveled to the left in the direction of Ty, as if trying to pick up cues from her. He went on tangents. A straightforward question prompted him to rattle off a sequence of data about Japanese interest rates in 2010 and how they tended only to move within a narrow range. Pause for a moment, Hawes interrupted. Just slow down. Asked if his requests to other traders and brokers were effective, Hayes said there was no evidence they had been. There might have been correlations, but that's not the same as causation. Then he dived into a scientific explanation about the empirical basis for determining cause and effect with control groups. A question that touched on the Bank of England's efforts to squelch the financial crisis triggered a passionate soliloquy about the central bank's futility. When Hawes mispronounced the name of French bank BNP Paribas, Hayes corrected him. Ty cringed and shook her head as her husband's focus lapsed. Then a new problem surfaced. It wasn't just the pressure of trying to keep his facts straight, to not sound too afflicted, to make eye contact with jurors, to not obsess about the fact that his future was hanging in the balance. Hayes's toes had started to tingle. By the time the court broke for lunch, his feet were partly numb. A decade earlier, doctors had wondered about whether similar numbness might be an early sign of multiple sclerosis, but when the feeling faded, the episode had been dismissed as a false alarm. But now, at the worst possible moment, here it was again. Maybe the doctors had been mistaken. Ty told him it was probably stress-related or the result of sitting for a long period in an uncomfortable chair. 
She didn't entirely believe what she was saying. That afternoon, Hayes nonetheless hit the crucial points. He introduced the concept of the permissible range and argued that since he was asking for numbers from within that band, he wasn't violating the BBA's definition of LIBOR. In that case, how could his behavior be construed as dishonest? He also emphasized that LIBOR was only one part of his overall trading strategy, and that, in the middle of the financial crisis, with markets gyrating wildly and banks not lending to each other, the notion that anyone could rig LIBOR, or that there was even such a thing as an accurate rate, was preposterous. That night, Hayes couldn't sleep. The case racing through his head, he took a sleeping pill. It didn't work. He swallowed another. Then he started worrying that he was overdosing. The following morning, he was a wired mess. His face was flushed, and his voice had taken on a scratchy tone, as if there was something caught in his throat. Ty had noticed that sound before, at other times when Hayes was on the brink of unraveling. Now, though, there was nothing she could do. She couldn't even talk to him about the case. With Hayes on the stand, Hawes walked him through dozens of instances of other UBS employees taking into account their trading positions when they set LIBOR. Many of the examples predated Hayes' arrival at UBS, and he wasn't a participant in any of the chats and phone calls. Hayes answered calmly and articulately and came off as credible. Previously skeptical journalists in the audience began to wonder whether the case was slipping away from the SFO. The next day, after a strike by London's tube workers' union caused the trial to not start until noon and left Hayes fatigued by travel-related stress, Hawes began grilling his client with questions about his communications with the ICAP brokers. Hayes announced that he couldn't believe they were having this conversation without any discussion of whether Goodman actually had adjusted his run-throughs in helpful ways. His own analysis suggested that about half the time, the run-throughs weren't beneficial at all. This lack of analysis, this lack of critical thinking, is absolutely typical of how this whole investigation has been carried out, with no reference to numbers, he erupted. Then Hayes took a breath and pulled himself together. His rant was over. I'm sorry, he said. What was the question? In the audience that day were two San Francisco-based lawyers, Joseph Kachet and Nancy Nishimura. They happened to be in London and figured they would drop by to see the LIBOR mastermind in person. This was the guy, after all, whose actions were the basis for a series of class-action lawsuits they had filed in 2013 on behalf of several cities, counties, and other public institutions. The litigation was working its way through the federal court system, but it wasn't going as well as Kanchet and Nishimura had hoped. A judge had sided with the defendants, many of the world's biggest banks, and found that the plaintiffs lacked standing to bring the antitrust suit. The lawyers were appealing the ruling, but the situation had left them in grouchy moods convinced that the judicial system was biased in the bank's favor. In court that day, Cachette was wearing a seersucker jacket, a red, white, and blue shirt, and beige cargo pants. He watched as Hawes presented Hayes 
with what seemed like one leading question after another. He's sitting up there all arrogant, Conchette bellowed in the crowded courtroom during a break. What a disgrace. He couldn't believe that Chowla hadn't loudly objected to more of Hawes's softball questions. When Hayes walked past, Conchette glared at him, contempt burning in his eyes. Ty, standing nearby, noticed the large, brash American giving her husband a filthy look. The anger, the disgust on Conchette's face, seemed more severe than anything she'd ever seen from even a prosecutor. Ty did her best to return the death stare. Conchette and Nishimura were taken aback by the fearsome look. They didn't know who this tall, blonde woman was, but they marveled at the intensity of her stare. The next day, a Friday, Hayes was back on the stand, and Hawes pushed him increasingly hard. This was the final day of the direct examination, and the lawyer wanted to do as much as possible to blunt the lines of attack that he expected Chowla to deploy in what was sure to be a brutal cross-examination. But Hayes was irritated by his lawyer's approach, and his answers took on a snarky, sneering tone. By the afternoon, Hayes was becoming emotional, his voice cracking. At one point, he tried to explain that since he was the guy responsible for overseeing all of his team's LIBOR-dependent trades, he was therefore making requests to benefit everyone's positions, not just his own. And now I'm wound up sat here. I wasn't operating in a vacuum, though. Are you someone who loses your temper? Hawes asked. Yeah, I get frustrated, particularly when I care about things, he said. I get angry when I feel people aren't doing their jobs properly. I flip out. I have meltdowns. I get insanely angry. I guess I'm trying to communicate, and sometimes I find it hard. Hawes asked why Hayes had admitted wrongdoing to the SFO. Hayes recalled his near-mental breakdown, how he'd been living day to day, how he'd watched his life falling apart, how he'd panicked and felt like he didn't have a choice. His eyes welled up. The intermediary, sitting next to him on the stand, called for a break. Ty wiped tears off her face. When court resumed a few minutes later, Hawes didn't let up. Why didn't Hayes just tell the SFO he didn't do anything wrong? I knew what I thought and what I wanted to say, but I knew I couldn't say it, he said. He needed to get charged, and to get charged, he needed to admit wrongdoing. What I wanted to say is, I've not done anything. It was just my job, and I'm not dishonest. He begged the jury to think about how most people don't show up to work and consider whether what they're doing is honest or dishonest. They just do their jobs. Hayes bowed his head, his face flushed, his cheeks wet. He dabbed his eyes with a tissue. He kept sobbing on the train ride home. Joshua was sick that weekend. Hayes spent the next two days in bed with his son. Curled up with the boy, he was finally able to sleep. On Monday morning, Hayes walked into court alone through a drizzle. In the witness box, he propped up the creased photo of Joshua. He was determined to stare at the picture instead of making eye contact with Chowla. That represented his best hope of maintaining his composure. 
Mr. Hayes, do you regard yourself as an honest man? The prosecutor began. Yes. Do you think you as a banker? Hayes interrupted Chowla to clarify that he was a former banker. As a former banker, have a different understanding of honesty than other people? Hayes said he didn't know what other people's understandings of honesty were. The cat and mouse game continued. Do you think it is right to steal? Chowla asked, his large left hand supporting his chin and the side of his face. Hayes's mind was in overdrive. He sensed a trap and tried to anticipate what the prosecutor was aiming for, what next question he had in his quiver. Steal is quite a broad word, he finally answered. I might steal a cookie from the table when my wife's told me that I'm not meant to take one. The grilling continued, as did the defendant's evasive maneuvers. Do you accept that it would be wrong to make money by telling lies? Chowla asked. Do you need a rule or a regulation to know when something is honest or dishonest? Hayes, the prosecutor asserted, was cavalier about the truth. He didn't care about honesty as long as he was getting what he wanted, whether that was making money or being charged by the United Kingdom so that he wouldn't be extradited. Chowla cycled through each of Hayes' admissions to the SFO, followed by a simple question. Was that a lie? Or was that the truth? Hayes struggled to answer. I was not at that time a particularly rational individual, he spat. I was looking at a world of bad options. My main concern was whether I was going to be put on a plane to the USA in the next seven days. When Hayes had answered yes to the SFO's question about whether he acted dishonestly, Chowla asked, was that dishonest? That was false, Hayes conceded. Can you not bring yourself to say lie? Well, it was a lie, Hayes finally said. It's disgusting that I was forced into this situation by the United States government. Chowla pounced. Nobody forced you to rig those rates, did they? Hayes questioned the use of the word rig. Nobody forced you to get brokers to rig rates, did they? The prosecutor repeated. Nobody forced you to get other bank traders to rig rates, did they? Some of Hayes' answers strained credibility. His prior admission to the SFO that his agreement with Guillaume Adolf was dishonest wasn't what it seemed, he now insisted. He was only trying to tell the SFO that the pact was more dishonest than his previous arrangements with others, not that it was actually dishonest. Cook smirked. Was this all a dishonest charade involving you and your lawyer? Chowla asked. This was a means to an end, Hayes answered. It was me answering questions in a way to optimize my chances of getting charged without regard to my real opinion. Anyway, Hayes ventured, what did Chowla mean by charade? My idea of charades is of a game played at Christmas involving books and films, he deadpanned. Nobody smiled. For such a long, hard-fought trial, there were surprisingly few facts in contention. Everyone agreed that Hayes had peppered dozens of people with hundreds, if not thousands, of requests to move LIBOR in advantageous ways. Nobody disputed that Hayes used switch trades to thank the brokers, 
There was even agreement that Hayes' bosses knew about and condoned what he was doing, and that countless other traders were doing more or less the same thing. The key question was whether Hayes had acted honestly, and his success at establishing that all-important credibility was at best mixed. I don't know what the outcome is going to be here, Hayes said in his last words on the stand, but I know in my heart I did the right thing, and I won't have that same life sentence as if he had pleaded guilty. The judge thanked him. He returned to his seat. Sandy smiled as he walked past. That night, a Friday, Hayes took a bath, drank a glass of orange juice, and passed out. The trial was nearing an end. He and Ty knew it might be one of their last weekends as a family for a long time. They spent Saturday at a small music festival near their home. Joshua's preschool friends came for a picnic. Long into the evening, they sat on the village green, the kids playing with dinosaurs and the grown-ups chatting. Hayes seemed content. He managed not to talk much about his ordeal. By the end of the weekend, the last of the numbness in his feet had faded away. The barrister's closing statements followed predictable routes. This all comes down to honesty, Chow La intoned. His actions were nothing more and nothing less than dishonest. The prosecutor noted that the disgraced cyclist Lance Armstrong had defended himself by saying his competitors were also doping. Just because other people are acting dishonestly doesn't give you or other people carte blanche to act in a similar way, Chowla said. Hawes's main goal was to drape everything the prosecution had said with a curtain of doubt. Get the jury to go through all the evidence, he figured, and anything could happen. We are awash in evidence, Hawes contended. Is he so blind, so dishonest, that he simply ignored all these flags that were shown to him? We suggest not. But his delivery, speaking softly, pausing between clauses, was like a lullaby to the jurors, who, one by one, seemed to be tuning out. A woman in a black dress decorated with red flowers started to nod off. A juror in the back row leaned his head against the wall and blinked slowly. A third bowed his head and closed his eyes. In the front row, another juror yawned, stretched, and removed his glasses. That evening, Hayes was feeling giddy. For all intents and purposes, the trial was over. Cook was going to spend the next few days giving the jury detailed instructions about the legal framework for interpreting each piece of evidence. His typed script ran more than 200 pages. Sitting outside at a pub, smoking cigarettes and drinking beer, Hayes considered the jurors. He was pretty sure he had at least three on his side. Juror one, a short man who Hayes decided harbored an anti-authority streak, and jurors 11 and 12, who sat next to each other and, Hayes thought, regularly smiled at him. That was enough to guarantee he would either be acquitted or the jury would be hung. Hayes's lawyers also were providing encouragement, perhaps unintentionally. During Chow La's closing statement, Hayes had been grumbling and gesticulating. His lawyers told him to shut up. At one point, 
They passed him a handwritten note. You can still lose this. Hayes interpreted that as meaning that he currently was in a position to win. He and Ty started envisioning a victory party. The jurors were instructed to use a two-part test to determine whether the agreements Hayes had entered into were fraudulent. The first question was whether a normal, reasonable human would have considered Hayes' actions to be dishonest. If no, then the jury should acquit. If yes, they had to answer a second question. Did Hayes, at the time of his actions, realize that what he was doing was dishonest according to reasonable human standards? If yes, he was guilty. In other words, the jurors needed to put themselves inside Hayes's head back when he was a traitor in Tokyo. You can't open up a person's mind to see what's inside, Cook observed. The jurors should use common sense, taking into account all the evidence, including Hayes's statements to the SFO and his testimony during the trial. Don't consider sympathy or emotions, the judge said, only the evidence. The jurors left the courtroom hauling armloads of documents and color-coded binders filled with evidence. Shortly after, Hayes's lawyers met with Cook in his chambers. He made it clear that, if their client was convicted, he intended to make an example out of him. Hawes broke the news to Hayes and Ty a few minutes later. He was facing a possible 12-year prison sentence, worse than the couple had expected. Hayes sat motionless, on the verge of tears. At home that evening, he became manic, talking nonstop, tapping his foot, yanking out his hair. It reminded Ty of his erratic behavior in the first half of 2013. He will need to be put on suicide watch if he's convicted, Ty thought to herself. Day after day, the deliberations dragged on. Time crept by. Chow La's daughter baked chocolate-frosted cupcakes, decorated with tiny silver candies, and the prosecutor brought a Tupperware container of them to court to treat staff and journalists. Ever since his cross-examination, Hayes had been wearing the same outfit every day, his trusty black slacks, a light blue shirt, and a thin blue sweater. He washed the shirt every evening. He spent hours pacing in a hallway. At one point, a college friend stopped by to distract him with reminiscences. Another day, a professor whom Hayes had consulted as a possible expert witness hung out on the courthouse's fifth floor with him. Whenever the court's scratchy loudspeakers summoned people back to a courtroom, Ty's adrenaline surged. She came to dread the sound of static when the system was switched on. Too stressed to eat, they spent their lunch breaks smoking cigarettes by the river, taking in the view of the glistening skyscrapers and the World War II-era gunship, the HMS Belfast, permanently moored on the riverbank. On the way back into court, a swarm of photographers and camera crews filmed them. Every single time they do this, Hayes grumbled to Ty after one smoke break as a photographer stuck the snout of his camera into his face. Finally, at 2.35 on the afternoon of August 3rd, the courthouse speakers squawked with Hayes' name. After a week of deliberations, the jury had reached a verdict.